Without any further ado, we're going to turn over to Richard, who has the sermon for us this morning. And Richard, I know we've taken a little extra of your time. Uh, take the time you need, my brother, and share the word that the Lord has placed in your heart. Would you welcome Richard Kaiser? Thank you. I hope you can stand a double deuce. <laughs> Bear with me. I have to find my stuff. Praise God. So today's message is going to be about, let's see, what did I call it? Paul's transition. Paul's transformation, actually. Now I got it. A lot of transitions going on, aren't there? Thunder and heavens. <laughs> and we don't give Zeus the credit, no. We give our wonderful children. Praise God. Beautiful. So I thought I'd talk about Paul's transformation. You know, Paul, most of the New Testament, amen, most of what I read about, what, I, what touches my heart is from his letters, and as you, I'm sure, have seen. Amazing man of God, through missionary trips, and then a final trip to Rome, started so many churches, spread so much of the word of God throughout the land in those days. So powerful. And yet, he didn't start out that way, did he? No. So I want to look at what he was before. What was he like before? If you're interested, you can go to Acts. Uh, this gives us Luke's account. At the end of chapter 7, and you know, I'll briefly run through the book of Acts just a little bit lightly. You remember the book of Acts. Again, Luke wrote a gospel, and then he followed that with the book of Acts, which continued on with uh, chapter 2, the, the Holy Spirit descending on what we call Pentecost. Sort of the end of Luke is when Jesus ascends. 40 days after his resurrection, and then 50 days he sends the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 2. Tongues of flames, amazing, probably the most powerful chapter in the Bible, the Holy Spirit descending on mankind. Amen. Amen. Just the beginning of the church, we'll call it. Peter was touched, as they were all. Peter, Peter wound up preaching to those who actually were involved with the crucifixion of Jesus. 3,000 souls were saved. Amen. The power of the Holy Spirit coming upon them, giving them everything, giving them power, giving them boldness, giving them overcoming the fear of them being next on the cross. But they stepped forward anyway, and they suffered. I mean, they were thrown in prison. Of course, God, in his wonderful way, as soon as the guards left, opened the prison doors, and on it goes in Acts. I'm not going to do the whole thing, but then we move on to them becoming very effective. And, of course, the local Pharisees were highly incensed. And it culminated with the stoning of Stephen. And if you read the end of chapter 7, it says, 
that says so much. I don't want to read it all, but uh, then they, they stoned him. 50, verse 58, then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. But when he had said this, he fell asleep. Powerful. The stoning of Stephen saw Jesus in the clouds, was stoned. He fell asleep. We know he died. It gives me courage. You know, we, sometimes I imagine, like, some, like so many Christians in the past, being called to die for Jesus, literally. And that kind of evokes fear, <laughs> you know. None of us like the thought of that. And yet here we see Stephen passing on, falling asleep. We know God's hand was on Stephen. We know that he saw the Lord and we know falling asleep, how can you fall asleep in pain? How can you fall asleep other than in peace? So God is miraculous. He, we can't conceive how this happens, but God can make anything happen. Even comforting Stephen during his stoning. But there was a man who was part of this. His, man name was, his name was Saul which later became Paul. What kind of man was Paul to allow this, to promote it? So then we go on to Acts chapter 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now he went on his way, and let me back up. Let's, let's just remember more about Paul before we get him to his, his moment. Saul, I'll go back up to chapter eight, eight, chapter 8 again. But Paul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women to, and committed them to prison. Didn't want to miss that part. So not only was he part of stoning Saul, he was part of house after house dragging off men and women to jail. Easy to say, hard to imagine. What evokes to me is memories of Nazi Germany. I won't go further than that with that point, but it's house to house dragging people off to jail. Jail is not some simple little thing in Barnstable Jailhouse. It was a prison. And there were kids, where'd the kids go? What happened? What happened to the families? Were they left in the streets? I mean, the, the implications of that are far-reaching and devastating. He was killing people and families. This was very horrible. <coughs> in his perspective, uh, the Pharisees of the time saw the Christian faith called the way as a disease that was striking their religion. Yes, I mean, think where he was coming from. He was a zealous man who loved God, 
in his way. You can go to Psalm 1 if you want to see probably how he was thinking, you know. Let's look at Psalm 1. That's just worth a second. That's my favorite psalm, so I just like to go there. Just to get a sense of that, okay, he did these horrible things. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. We're called to do that. Our law is a little more encompassing because we see the New Testament. We're in a different point in time. In his point in time, there was no New Testament yet. You know, Jesus had just arrived. He was coming from the, the Mosaic Covenant, Moses, the law, the Pharisee. He was a zealous Pharisee. He meant well, didn't he? Yet it led him to death and destruction of humankind. How do you put those two together? I, I don't have those answers. I'm just laying out where he was coming from. He loved God. He thought he was saving his religion from this disease called the way. Does that justify killing people? No, but I can't judge him. Nevertheless, he was wrong. Did God leave him in that state? Did God cast him into hell, so to speak? Leave him on that road to destruction? He didn't. Let's go on. Back at Acts 9. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And after falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. That's a shocker, isn't it? How do you think he felt about that? I mean, here he is, having believed so much in the law, believing he must have heard about Jesus on the cross. I mean, he was there. He must have believed that Jesus was part of this disease that he didn't rise from the dead, I guess. I mean, I don't know what he believed, but he certainly didn't believe up to that point. All of a sudden, he faces Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, who says, here I am. What are you doing? And then he went on to say, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. So there were witnesses to this. And this actually came in handy later. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So now he gets up. He's blinded. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight 
and neither ate nor drank. And I know later he was praying a lot because it says it later. So he was praying, fasting and praying. What have I done? I mean, could you imagine? Could you imagine having come from killing people for God and then Christ appears and says, you got it wrong. There's a word called guilt comes to mind for me. There's a word called, uh, I'm not sure, I don't use words. <laughs> you can imagine the feelings better than I can express it, but oh my gosh, what have I done? What have I done? Now let's move on to the next really cool guy. Ananias. And there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. Isn't that a wonderful response to the Lord? Reminds me of Samuel. Anyway, let's go on with this. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. Remember, fasting and praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Okay. But you remember, Ananias knew, heard the word about this guy. This is a guy who has been grab, grabbing his friends and loved ones and people he knew and dragging him off and throwing them in the jail. You know, it's kind of like... This is kind of a stretch, but bear with me. We saw a while ago a thing called ISIS grabbing Christians and Jews and beheading them. It's a horrible scene, a horrible situation a few years ago. What if the Lord said to you, I want you to go there and meet a man who's responsible for killing people that are Christians? What would you say? I'm not sure what I would say, <laughs> but he, Ananias, did what the Lord asked him to do. And Ananias said, but he had some doubts, right? I think I have a lot in common with Gideon too. You know, Lord called Gideon, you don't mean me, the weakest guy of the tribe, but I'm going to go conquer all these Philistines? Let me put this mat down. And if tomorrow morning, if there comes the dew and the mat stays dry, that's a miracle that I know we, you know, I would, I would be testing the Lord because I'm not sure I'd want to jump on a plane and go there. So there was a test. Lord, I have heard about, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priest, he got those letters, from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Wow, now that's key. So the Lord said Ananias what he has planned for Paul. I'm not sure what he told Paul. He doesn't say. But he's telling Ananias that this is my man. He's going, to, he's going to spread my name between, to the Gentiles, the kings, the rulers, the government rulers, 
and the children of Israel as well. And then he says, For I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake of my name. He's calling him to suffer. Do you, do you think that's in response to the suffering he caused? I don't think it works that way. I don't think God's into suffering for suffering. Nevertheless, in his quest to spread the word, there will be suffering. That's just part of the deal. Jesus told us those who follow me will be persecuted. Paul's going to follow that trail. At least, at least he isn't making it evident. I don't know how much he made evident to Paul at this point, but like most things, God doesn't show us the whole story of the plans he has for us because we can't handle it. He has things in mind for us that we can't begin to comprehend that are far-reaching, that are, require intense, amazing amount of bravery, actually. But we don't know. Thank God we don't know, because we can only handle it step by step. If Paul knew, maybe, maybe not, but nevertheless, what was ahead for him was a lot. And as we read the letters and read Acts and read what he's going to go through, we know he had three missionary trips, and he knows as part of those trips he was stoned to death, thrown outside the city walls for the dogs to eat, and the next day he was back preaching. We know that has to be God. We know there's a lot of suffering involved in that probably, unless, I don't know, unless he just fell asleep, <laughs> I don't know. Nevertheless, a lot was ahead for Paul at that point. Let's see. Brother, so then Ananias departed, entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Two things. Regain sight and filled with the Holy Spirit, he said. And immediately some scales from, fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, taking food, as we said. Thank you, Lord. So he was now ready. And if you continue in Acts, Luke, who wrote Acts, who, he's very good at documenting what happens in the, in the order they happen. And, of course, he actually wrote the book of Acts because it follows Paul's life to the end of his ministry. He wrote it at the end of Paul's ministry, which was quite a while after this occurred. Uh, to fill in the gaps of this process, uh, we need to go to what Paul had to say about it. And he did. In his first letter. So between the first and second missionary trip, he wrote a letter to the Galatians. And in the book of Galatians, starting chapter 1, he talks about himself and this process not quite the same words, because it's from his point of view, much more personal, and probably not as detailed as to the amount of suffering he has, because his point wasn't to, quote, 
show his suffering, but it was, quote, to reach the people he was talking to in Galatia. But if you want, you can move ahead to Galatians chapter 1. And it gives you his perspective as to the process that he went through. Well, I'm going to Galatians chapter 1. If you start at verse 14, that's actually a better spot. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. Step one. So he was relatively young. Not sure what that means. But relatively young. Uh, advancing in Judaism. He was a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee in training. He was probably the best Pharisee of his class. I mean, he was a good Pharisee. He was doing really well. He was so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. Zealous meaning he was really aggressive, let's put it that way. Really uh, forceful, really into it, was sold completely into the Pharisee. And the, but when he who had set me apart before I was born, who's that? Who sets you apart before you're born? Yes, Jesus, God. And who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, God calling Jesus, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. So that's his expression of what happened. Amen? Brief, to the point, all the Galatians really needed to know. But from his perspective, he finally understood what was happening. But he now describes the process he went through that doesn't really show it Acts. In Acts, it kind of shows him uh, hearing from God, Ananias expressing what's going to happen, and then it shows him going uh, into Jerusalem with the help of Barnabas and on from there. Here it shows time going on, time to adjust, because you don't go through transitions like that overnight. It's too much, too fast, too soon. So in the next step here is, let's see where I left off. Okay. I did not immediately consult with anyone, which meant he was on his, he went on his own. Amen. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia, into Arabia, south and east of Jerusalem. Arabia is now Saudi Arabia, the desert. He went to be alone with God. He needed to talk to God. He didn't want a bunch of people telling him what he do, what he ought to do, or where he ought to go, or he needed time with God. <clears throat> then after three years, and returned again to Damascus, then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, remained with him 15 days, saw no other apostles at this point in time. So he wasn't really connecting with the apostles yet. Then I went into the region of Syria and Cilicia. 
And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing it said about him. He who used to persecute us now is preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. So he was now in a mode of preaching in an area where he was not well known. Eventually he goes back to where he was well known, but he needed help with that. But for three years and then 14 years, he was off spreading the word of God with his testimony, which in my mind resorts back to why pick Paul? to spread the word to the Gentiles. I mean, there was John, Jesus' quote, favorite, maybe, or one of the other disciples to spread the word. But Paul was coming from the opposite extreme. Here was a man focused on destroying Christianity, killing people in the name of his endeavor. God uses him converted to love him. What a testimony that is, isn't it? Doesn't he tend to use the worst to show how much the transformation has been caused by the word of the gospel? If you pick someone who's already a lover of Jesus, who spent three years with him and loves him already and, and then has him preach, well, yeah, but he already knew him. That doesn't look like a miracle. But Saul becoming Paul has to be a miracle. I mean, it's like day and night. When I look at ourselves, me in particular, but all of us actually, you know, we were all lost. We were all sinners, and we still are, but we were all lost to Jesus. And we were found. And that gives us a testimony. And the best testimony actually comes from the worst of us. Not the best of us. So how's that? Isn't that, isn't that awesome how God does that? And so many times I hear people saying, yeah, but I was so bad, first of all, that God can't forgive me. Well, we get over that once we understand the blood of Jesus and that we are forgiven and we come to Christ. And then, well, we, we don't feel adequate to spread the gospel because, you know, we're, we're like, you know, we weren't Bible kids all our lives. We've come from the streets. How about that's the best testimony there is? You know? God always, it's just, it's just amazing how God does that. So don't any of us feel like our testimony is inadequate. It's good. And same way with your friends. You know, the more you've changed, the more it's evident that Jesus is in your life. Amen? So don't feel inadequate. God can do it with you. So after 14 years, he went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas. And taking Titus along with him, I went up because of revelation and set before them, before me, the gospel I proclaim among the Gentiles. So Galatians now has him 
in Damascus, finally after three plus 14 years or 17 years. So now if I jump back to Acts, now you can pick up what's going on because when you read Acts by itself, around verse 19, 20, he's saying, for some days he was with disciples in Damascus. And then verse 23, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. And then eventually he went to Jerusalem uh, with Barnabas. That's where the 17 years are over at verse 26. So if you just zip through Acts, it looks like just a couple days have passed between these events. And it's actually three years and then 14 years. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he tempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him into the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. And he went in among them preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, which was a form of the Jewish faith, and they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So, so he was in, a, in kind of a difficult position. In Jerusalem, they hated him. Uh, because he, you know, hauled people away to jail. And outside of Jerusalem, it, it was the same thing. Because he, whenever he went to another city, he went to speak to the Jewish faith first and then to the Gentiles second. And created a problem typically wherever he went. But the word was being spread. But he was now acting as a, a apostle, basically, forming churches, moving throughout. And I don't want to go through his whole history of the church. Uh, of this, you know, that's not the point. The point I wanted to touch on was the transformation of Paul, from what he was to what he became. Transformations. We see it all the time. If you look at church history, transformation of churches over time. Back in Paul's day, and before then, even during the apostles, uh, apostolic church uh, run by the apostles, formed, formed by the apostles, elder-led churches, and we'll talk about that later regarding our church, but that's not my mission today. But the church has evolved from there. And not evolution doesn't always mean better. It means it changed because of the great persecution to the church that occurred. Initially, as we mentioned here, there was a scattering of the apostles, uh, some many to Damascus, uh, other places, uh, even to Rome. The Church of Rome was started, we believe, by the scattering of the disciples from Jerusalem during the stoning of Stephen. But then that was all followed by the three missionary trips of Paul. That was the most effective way of spreading the gospel. And not only did he preach the gospel, that's where the power was. We heard about that. 
But he also uh, taught them how to set up churches. Because he would preach the gospel and he would set up a church, so to speak, giving them a, a structure, a way of running church, we'll call it, and then move on and do it again and again and again. And it was, and I guess he wondered if that really would work <laughs> because being church is being run by people is challenging because we all fall short of the glory of God. So he, he would start a missionary trip and go through the same area to start off with and then hit another and came back. And the second trip, he went through that initial area. That's also where he was stoned. Uh, and then move to a second area, and then the third trip, he'd hit the first two and then go to a third area. So he was repeating some of the churches that he had originally set up. And during the missionary trips, he only wrote uh, a few of his letters. Uh, he wrote, as I mentioned, the first book was to Galatians, and that was between the first and second missionary trip. And then uh, between the second and third, he would read... Uh, he would write the two Thessalonians, first and second Thessalonians. I can't say it. <laughs> it's a mouthful. And then after the, uh, yeah, after the third trip, he wrote, uh, no, between second and third, he wrote also first and second Corinthians. But that was it for his writing of letters during the missionary trips. After that, uh, he was then hauled off to Rome and wrote all the rest of the books in jail. And it just so happened that Luke was in the same area. I, I imagine somehow he helped him. I'm, the, I'm sure the Roman church there helped him because how do you write books of the Bible while you're in jail? I have a hard time with that. But there must be a way. I don't know whether you pay off jailers or do what, but they managed to get some form of comfort to him and able, you know, pens and paper. What do they use? Not paper, but scrolls. <laughs> Whatever you write on in those days. So he was, he was somehow supported. Uh, and <clears throat> different books of the Bible were written. And uh, a number of them were written before his, he, was, he was actually held captive twice. Uh, yeah, he wrote Philemon, Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians during prison the first time. Then he was released for actually four years where he preached again around Rome and was put in jail a second time and wrote Second Timothy. And after that, he was executed by Rome. Paul's amazing. But as I mentioned, churches have transformations. People have transformations. I'll leave with, I'll leave with that. Because the people transformations are a little more personal. We're all going through transformations, as I mentioned. You know, we uh, hear the word of God. We can't take credit for it because God has prepared our hearts to hear the word before we hear it. But it touches our hearts and we give ourselves to the Lord. And if anyone here hasn't given themselves to the Lord, please say so. Let us hear. Let us be able to talk to you. Once we give ourselves to the Lord, it all begins. The transformation begins, doesn't it? It's called sanctification. 
And it's an, it's an endless process because, you know, we're all still in sin at some level. But the grace of God covers that sin. He asks us to, to confess and repent. But there's still a struggle. You know, it's, we don't live under the thought that life is simple or easy because we're with Christ. It's actually the opposite. We actually are just with Paul. He did find the Lord. He found the Lord. The Lord found him, which is actually always the case. We don't really find the Lord. The Lord finds us and works with us. And we finally, in our wayward <laughs> stupidness, <laughs> finally open our eyes and see what he's done for us and how he's opened the way. It's a struggle. Hebrews 12 is my favorite passage in this regard. I keep bringing it up over and over again. <laughs> I did last Thursday at men's breakfast. <laughs> but I'll bring it up today since not all of you were there at breakfast. So here we go. Let me just read a little passage from Hebrews 12, starting at verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you have completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son. It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. So enjoy your suffering from the Lord. It shows he loves you. How's that? How true it is, isn't it? I mean, if he just ignored you, means he doesn't care for you, does he? It also turns it around as fathers and mothers and grandfathers and grandmothers. Discipline of our children is necessary. If we don't do it, we're not loving our children, are we? We're letting them just run the way of the world. They need discipline. They need you. Sanctification. There's one more step after sanctification. That's glorification. You're not there yet. I'm not there yet. None of us are. We find that with the Lord after we're with him. But Paul has an interesting take on the future glory. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is about to be revealed to us. Amen? Yes, we do suffer. Things happen. Not often. Uh, God knows they're happening, and he allows it to happen because he's disciplining us. He loves us. He's changing us. Amen? But... For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing, revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. 
that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Amen. We're in childbirth. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Amen. There we are. Living a life with God, yielding to His favor, which is hard to do because we have our own desires, but we need to yield, causing challenges that He sets before us, taking us places we may not want, really want to go, but he sends us there because he has a much bigger picture in mind. And that picture is not all about us being comfortable or us being happy in this world today. It has to do with us being called to do what he calls us to do. We saw it in Paul in a very demonstrative, powerful way, coming from a very lost condition to a very powerful, here is Jesus to the world condition. Amen. Wouldn't it be wonderful to be with Paul in those missionary trips? But he had to go a long way before he could be there. But you can be there too. And you are. We're all called in our own special little ways. We're called individually. It's important. We're led by the Spirit, not by the law. So it's important to know the difference. You know, the, I love the Bible and it says so much and I could devise how my life ought to be run by reading from the Bible because the Bible says do this and do that and I can put together my own little recipe from the Bible. Not that it would be unholy but the Spirit is the guide because the Spirit's unique to us. God knows the talents He gave us just as he reached into Jeremiah and adjusted him for what he had in mind, he has reached into the womb for each of you, and you have been adjusted with the talents and abilities to do what he has planned for you. And not only here, but in the future to come, which we can't even begin to fathom. But we're designed specifically for a purpose here on earth as well. He knows what that is. He knows how that fits into the bigger picture. Each of us, our own little trail. Each of us, our own little life in the midst of the millions and billions of lives that crawl on this planet to achieve what he wants. And we have to trust in that. We have to follow the Spirit of God through that, even though it requires challenges, whether it's challenges in Africa, whether it's challenges in Virginia, whether it's challenges in Tucson, on it goes. Everyone has their own set of challenges. It may require movement or not, because you have plenty of challenges in your own neighborhood. Amen? So let's focus on that 
Let's not be weary. Let's not be worried. There will be challenges, but the Lord is there. And even though it's uncomfortable, we wait with patience for the glory to come. Amen. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, open our eyes and open our ears to what you have to say from your word, Lord. Show us the way you would have us go. Open the doors for the way you want us to go. Close the doors for the way we may want to go. But you need to stop us. We thank you, Father. We thank you for what you've done, for your word, for your Holy Spirit in us. We thank you for this church and the people that are here and how they touch our hearts, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the friends you have for us as well. We thank you for our families, and I lift up all the families that are here, Lord, that they be whole and loving and helpful and follow you, Lord. We praise you and thank you for all good things come from you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.